e-commerce went from 14% of retail sales up to 29% in 12 weeks. I mean, that is a 10-year trend that we accelerated. Welcome to Mission Critical, a podcast about the big picture, the purpose, and the values that drive today's most game-changing companies, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm your host, Lance Chung, Editor-in-Chief of Bay Street Bull, and I'll be introducing you to a group of brilliant minds who are making an impact on the world and forging the path ahead. While they may all be very different from one another, the question remains the same. What's your mission? It is our very first episode, and who better to kick off season one than a dragon? That's right, we are speaking with Michelle Romano today, co-founder of ClearBank and investor on CBC's Dragon's Den. Michelle is a force. She's a game changer and serial entrepreneur that is, in many ways, one of the most recognizable faces of Canada's entrepreneurial ecosystem. But perhaps most importantly, Michelle has always ascribed to the idea that entrepreneurship provides the quickest path to solving today's toughest problems, and has long been a champion of Canada's ability to produce world-conquering brands right here in our own backyard. We have Michelle Romano here today, who is a multi-hyphenate serial entrepreneur. She is the co-founder and president of ClearBank, as well as a dragon on Dragon's Den, among many other things. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? It's a pleasure to be here and always wonderful to be interviewed by people that have supported me early. I wish we could be having this conversation in person, but all things considered, it's nice to be able to hear a voice. And as I mentioned, you know, you're a serial entrepreneur that is involved in a multitude of diverse businesses and industries. So there is a lot that we can explore and unpack today. But as I mentioned, I think what I really want to focus on is the bigger picture of it all and you know what gives you purpose across your businesses and collective experiences. What's the common denominator that ties everything together? Why don't we start with ClearBank? You started ClearBank in 2015 with your co-founder, Andrew D'Souza, and ClearBank is a venture capital firm that specializes in non-dilutive revenue share agreements with startups. And from my understanding, it is now the largest e-commerce investor in the world, having invested over a billion dollars into 2,800 companies across the states and Canada, and has also done a great job of funding eight times more women than traditional venture capital companies. So that's not bad for a company that is a few years old. If we start from the beginning, you know, what inspired you to start a company like ClearBank? It was our experiences as founders. Every once in a while, someone will be like, you know, you run like a huge fintech company. And I'm like, yeah, it's pretty weird because I knew nothing about financial services before starting this. But what I did deeply understand was what it was like to be a founder. Then on top of that, Andrew and I had very different stories as founders and operators. I mean, he had raised a ton of venture capital for different companies and had been really successful at that. He also saw the dark side of that where boards change their mind overnight, people can get fired overnight, and ultimately you have no control of the baby you're building. And what I had seen is, I mean, I've been a serial entrepreneur from the very beginning. And so what I realized as a founder is that 
if you go to Stanford or Harvard in the US, it is not hard to raise venture capital because you have everyone in your network with an enormous amount of capital. But if you are actually anyone else, <laughs> for the most part, it's incredibly hard to raise capital. And most founders don't go into business to be like, I can't wait to fundraise. <laughs> no one thinks about, I can't wait to fundraise. I can't wait to do my accounting. I can't wait to choose a credit card. Like no one thinks about that. They think about, I want to build something that changes people's lives and inspires people and delights my customers. And so that's when we came up with, what if this could be a far easier process to do this? And a lot of it was inspired, weirdly enough, by Dragon's Den. I think it's funny you know, people are like, you got a great idea from reality television. And I'm like, I sure did. Right. I'm watching all of these entrepreneurs give up huge portions of their company. Right. Like, look, for 100 grand, I'll give you 20 percent of my company. They're selling iPhone cases and they have great unit economics. You know, they need to do more advertising. And it was on the show six years ago that I said, look, there's something here where this doesn't make sense for either of us. Like as an investor, you know, the iPhone case company is not going to sell to Apple for a 10 times multiple. And for the founder, they're going to be really resentful when I own 20% of their business. And so it was really on the show where I said, look, instead of me giving you this $100,000 and taking 20% of the company, why don't I give you a hundred grand and you give me 5% of your revenue until you pay me back my money. So 100 grand plus 6%. So you totally pay me $106,000. So this wasn't very expensive capital. This wasn't a loan. There was no personal guarantee or a fixed payment timelines or compounding interest. This was truly like a revenue share deal. And, you know, frankly, I didn't think that this would become such a revolution. But what we did discover after is today, 40% of VC dollars go straight to Google and Facebook. So founders are using the most expensive capital to do something that's repeatable and scalable. And then it was like, we just made it so much easier. I mean, we called our product the 20 minute term sheet. You come in, you give us access to your data. And in 20 minutes, we can say, look, we can give you between 10,000 up to $10 million. And that was game changing for entrepreneurs. I mean, when we raise money for ClearBank, every time it's taken us three to six months. So we've been able to really change and revolutionize the business for founders. And maybe more importantly, and it goes back to your very first question, it's like, why does that matter? And I think that matters because like, I'm a firm believer that if we want things changed in the world, empowering founders is the absolute best and most effective way to do that. Well, and entrepreneurs are some of the world's greatest problem solvers and are always looking ahead and, and trying to fix and make things more efficient. And, and it totally makes sense. Going back to when you were starting ClearBank, the nature of the business really challenges the status quo of you know how things typically operate. Was it difficult to get people on board with that mission and believe in that vision and that product initially? Lance, I did 300 meetings out of Wall Street to hear the word no in different accents and different forms of the word no. And I think the rudest one was probably like, miss, like you don't understand credit. And our thesis was always that if you could use AI and automate the underwriting that VCs effectively did. I mean, VCs look at the same sort of thing. They look at the total size of your market. They look at your return on ad spend. They look at your lifetime values to acquisition ratios. If we could automate that, 
we could use that and make very good decisions and then have actually effectively lower losses than anyone else. But no one believed us because, you know, we were new and this hadn't been done before and this asset class hadn't been built before. And so that's what you hear at the beginning. You hear a lot of no's. And ultimately, you get a yes. And the people that backed us, you guessed it, were other entrepreneurs because they totally got it. If I'm a startup founder, can you walk us through how they would go about starting that process with ClearBank? How did they take the first steps, I guess? You can come to us through clearbank.com. You can reach out to one of the folks on our team. And then what you need to do is share access to your data sources just so we can read them. So these are things like your payment processor, your ad spend account, your bank account, so we can understand how your business is doing. And then typically, if you remember your passwords, that takes like 20 minutes. And in 20 minutes, we can say, this is how much capital we can give you. This is the terms of these capital. And this is the other benefits of being in our portfolio. And so we've built a lot of those things this year. I mean, you know, recently we just launched this tool called Valuation, which allows you to see how much your company is, which again, in the same way that like forever, it's been the people that had the money that chose what companies, right? I mean, if you were the king 2000 years ago, you chose what companies got built. And if you knew the king, you got funded. And if you didn't, you didn't. And we've kind of always known that the best entrepreneurs and the ones with the most grit and the most hustle often didn't come from the most privileged upbringings. And so here, we just look at people based on their data and nothing else. We funded eight times more women than the venture capital industry average. And this is nothing to do with top of pipeline. This is just because we use data to make our decisions. We have funded founders in all 50 states in America. You know, that compares to venture capital where 80% of VC dollars last year went into four states in America. And so we've always had this ethos that we are like by founders, which is Andrew and me, and like four founders. And so valuation was a part of that where it was like, you should know what your company's because you can't negotiate with someone if you don't know what you're worth. And for founders, you're so disadvantaged because maybe you'll get to see what your company's worth like when you do a fundraising round or when you sell your company, maybe a couple times in your career. But if you're a VC, you value companies every single day. And so we wanted to give that information back to founders. And so you can actually see week to week on how your valuation is changing and then how you can prove your business, how you can meet folks in our network that could potentially buy your company or VCs that could invest in equities. You also launched earlier this year, Runway. Was that something that you were working on pre-COVID or was that kind of a quick reaction as a result of COVID and acknowledging kind of the needs that were presented there? Runway, which is this idea that we could use our capital to extend the runway of your business and it could be used for any purposes. It wasn't just, you know, to be used for ad spend. It could be used for inventory or payroll or whatever else you needed. That really came out of a reaction to COVID because we went into a pretty significant economic crisis. No one knew what was going to happen and everyone is worried about their survival of their companies. And so, you know, we built this product around uh, being able to help with that. Now, ClearBank uses AI, artificial intelligence, to evaluate startups and essentially you know, democratize access to both capital and valuation, which are two critical components to a company's growth, uh, to a startup's growth. You're 
essentially leveling the playing field. And so it sounds, I guess, like a relatively simple question, but why is this so important and relevant to the conversations that society is having today around equitable access, whether that's in business or in society in general? I think that all of these conversations, I mean, if you look at the root of so many problems, they do involve access. They involve access to education, resources, and capital is an enormous one. And, you know, this was one of the things that I remember. I joined the cast of Dragon's Den when I was 28, so I was pretty young. And people really want you to help entrepreneurs. So it's like, well, can you do a course or can you do a talk? And I just remember this moment where I was kind of sitting there and I'm like, if you really care about empowering founders, you have to care about the capital problem because that is where like businesses often take flight. And there are like some incredible bootstrap companies and I'm not taking anything away from them. But for most people, you need some form of capital to scale up. And because that has been so unfairly distributed, you are not seeing the best ideas win. And the best ideas are good for all of us because they create the best companies. And now today, companies have a social fabric to them. They have a culture and they have ways that they give back to their community that builds us into a much better society. And so we think every time we empower a founder, we empower like the world that we want to build and continue to live in. It contributes to a barometer of the time where as consumers, we evaluate the companies that we are loyal to by shared visions, shared values. And it's not always just about a product or a service anymore. It is about, are you investing your loyalty in a company that shares the same values, the same social values. And when we create more space for more diverse group of companies that are able to grow, we're acknowledging a wider perspective of people. We're acknowledging our community. But I was reading a report earlier today. It was in 2018, but in the States, only 2.2% of $130 billion of total venture capital investments went to female founders. And in Canada, I believe only 4% of VC funding went to women-led companies. And yet with those numbers, female entrepreneurs contribute $148 billion every year to Canada's economy. And on a global scale, rank first when it comes to creating and running their own businesses. So I guess it's not so much of a question, but a statement that you're acknowledging and directly addressing through ClearBank, this gap and this I guess, opportunity to really build a foundation and a launchpad for diverse companies. I get really hesitant with saying people did this out of like being evil or bad, right? The old system is a human to human based system. Like for me to invest in you, I had to know you. And so it made sense. And there was a level of trust when you went to the same schools or when you ran in the same family circles or any of these things. That's why we see geographical hubs of venture capital where there's companies built in Silicon Valley in New York. And so it wasn't like these people set out to do something wrong. It was the limitation of the model that they were using. That in a human to human business, you can't meet that many humans. You can't evaluate them. You can't get on 800 flights a year. <laughs> I might've tried. I think I hit 150 one year, but like you can't do that. And so that's where the power of data and AI can change everything. And to us, 
these points on access to founders from everywhere, no matter what you look like and no matter what gender you are, are not talking points. We're not like on a stage saying this. We think this is an opportunity. Like This is incredible that there has been so many founders that have, have been overlooked. And, you know, we build a much better place when we can give everyone equal access. And then it's exactly what you said. The consumers decide and they are, people are voting with their wallets and they should. We should be backing the businesses that create the type of world we want to live in. And that's why, you know, more competitive economies, you see way more innovation than in economies where you have a few oligopolies or monopolies. Would you consider ClearBank also kind of like a, a Tinder or a matchmaker for investments? Because you also facilitate connections between startups and potential investors as well. I mean, I think revenue share capital is fantastic because you don't give up a piece of your company. You have the capital you want to grow. It's not very expensive. We don't have security in your company. We don't have a personal guarantee. And like it's genuinely capital I would have taken any day of the week when we were building Bytopia or any of the work that I've done. But, you know, I fundamentally believe that depending on what you're doing, you should be using different sources of capital depending on how you're spending it. So especially for things like ads and inventory, when you know you invest a dollar and you make $3, like you should be using way cheaper capital than equity because equity takes your control away. It takes a piece of your company away and it's irreversible. You can't get it back. I mean, technically can, but it's extremely difficult to buy your investors out after they've invested. But if you are taking true, insane zero to one risk, like you need to hire a hundred data scientists to do something or, you know, build a rocket to the moon or enter eight different countries at once where there's a real chance that that could all fail. That's like true equity risk. And therefore you should be looking at equity investors to support you to get there. And, you know, there's companies in our portfolio that are on that track and we do want to be introducing them to the right investors. And because we get so many referrals from investors, we've created this great network of VCs where they tell us, look, if you have consumer companies doing this much in revenue, growing this quickly, I want to meet them. And so we've facilitated introductions for almost 100 of our portfolio companies today, and they're highly curated. You're meeting five people that really want to meet you. Michelle's company, ClearBank, which she started with her partner, Andrew D'Souza, is, according to the brand, the largest e-commerce investor in the world. They're driven by what they call Canadian values, i.e. their commitment to diversity manifested in fair access to capital using artificial intelligence to assess investment opportunities. That's right, no human bias. That's important when you consider the fact that in 2019, 77.1% of American VC deals went to, you guessed it, white founders, most of them Ivy League educated men in Silicon Valley. On top of that, only 9% of transactions went to women, and a measly 1% to the Black community. ClearBank, on the other hand, has backed female founders at eight times the VC industry average, proving their thesis works, and that no matter who you are or where you come from, the best ideas, the best companies, are the ones that should be funded. They're helping to level the playing field. Twenty twenty has undoubtedly been a very busy, volatile, challenging, interesting year. In terms of COVID nineteen, 
how has that impacted your business and what opportunities have you seen arise as a result of COVID-19? This is a year unlike any other year. I actually think in some ways it will be interesting to step back and just realize how far people adapted and how quickly people can adapt because sometimes we don't give ourselves enough credit for that. I think for us, I think we got really lucky. When we started ClearBank, we had a few different other businesses that we were doing. One of them was backing Airbnb hosts. I mean, if we had been in that business and you know COVID hit and what happened to the travel industry, I mean, we would have been in a really, really rough place. And so we got extremely lucky. I mean, we backed all e-commerce companies and as a percentage of retail sales in America, I mean, e-commerce went from 14% of retail sales up to 29% in 12 weeks. I mean, that is a 10-year trend that we accelerated. Like we went from e-commerce 2020 into e-commerce 2030 in 12 weeks. And so it's pretty incredible. And we're not going backwards on this because everyone learned to buy everything online. Like think about your parents. They were probably scared to buy groceries online because the berries would be squished. Well, they learned to buy groceries online and it was great experience. Categories we never thought we would really get penetrated. Color cosmetics, where it was like you had to try this on. That became fully online. I've also noticed, you know, you've been very active and vocal in your own personal efforts to assist in COVID-19 relief efforts with PPE distribution. Can you talk a little bit more about what you've been doing on that side as well? So it was really interesting when COVID hit, my longtime business partner, Anatoly, that I had built, you know, Bytopia and Snapsys with, gets a call from his ex-girlfriend, who's a doctor in New York City. And she's like, look, I'm being sent to work with like a mask and a Ziploc bag, and I'm going to have to intubate COVID patients. And I mean, he was like, this is crazy. I mean, there's got to be a way. I mean, we've been sourcing products for e-commerce companies for a decade now. Like, there's got to be a way that we can help on this. And so, you know, I think we got the first order of 200,000 N95s, and I posted it on an Instagram story. And Lance, I've never seen anything in my life go viral like this. Like it wasn't even like people were responding on Instagram. Like within hours, I was getting hundreds of emails. And there was, I mean, this is like fire chiefs in Cape Breton. This was like hospitals. This was all sorts of places. And so the first order we really did is like a charity initiative. And then we were like, okay, this is actually a way bigger need. And this is really like all the credit here goes to Anatoly. I mean, he was the one that figured out how to get the product, you know, off the ground and find incredibly reliable long-term manufacturers of the stuff that had been doing this for years. There was a huge logistics problem where he figured out that you couldn't just book commercial flights to build this stuff. You actually needed armed security from like factory all the way to Canada to do this. I still remember the night that he called me and he goes, you know, we're going to have to book our own 747. And I was like, well, how much is it to get a 747? And he's like, a million bucks. And I was like, that seems really scary. And he's like, we have to do it. And that's what we had to do is book basically these private charters once a week to be able to deliver this stuff. And I'm just like immensely proud of like what he's been able to do. I mean, we've delivered over 10 million masks, over 4 million gowns. It's incredible. And it's honestly so amazing that you were able to harness those resources in a time where the community felt very vulnerable. And I guess ultimately... 
what I'm trying to get to with everything that I've been asking is, you know, I've noticed your personal initiatives as a mentor outside of ClearBank and your efforts with COVID-19 relief and your work at ClearBank. And the common thread is that they all contribute to this idea that entrepreneurs should be a resource to others. We need to help each other out. You know, yes, of course, we're pursuing our own ambitions and goals, but I feel like entrepreneurs, there is this duty to a community to help each other out. How do you think entrepreneurship can be of service to the community and accelerate problem solving, as we mentioned earlier? It's entrepreneurs that build our communities. Like, I think one of the hardest things for me to just see was just the devastation of local businesses during COVID-19, because you know, most of the businesses had kind of a couple of months of cash flow to go off of. I mean, you walk down the streets now to just see like some of the the stores and the leases, like it's emotional, like it's heartbreaking for me to see that. And I think one of the things you learn very early as an entrepreneur is that if you want to be successful, you can't do it alone. And it feels like you could do it alone. And we have a bit of a false narrative in the media that single founders, and Steve Jobs did it all alone. Like you do this with a team. And you do this with a community. And so I think that that's why you have to care because you are not scalable as a single person. Look, it took me a long time in my career to learn. My solution was not just to put in more hard work. It was actually that I had to bring other people along with me that could help me and that could be way better at so many of the things that I completely suck at. (laughs) And I think that's why you build the community, because ultimately we don't do this alone and you get so much more successful. Like this is truly one of those like high tides raises all boats and we compare it to countries, right? Like Silicon Valley is successful because it is a community and Israel is successful because it is a community. So you've experienced COVID-19 as a business owner, you experienced the recession with your first business, and then also just deal with the day-to-day struggles of entrepreneurship. How important do you think humility is for an entrepreneur? Because I think there is this kind of rock star sensationalism that surrounds the culture of entrepreneurship, but I don't think enough is said about being humble. This one kind of cuts both ways because... Really before Facebook, people did not want to leave school and leave business school and become an entrepreneur. They wanted to leave school and go work at McKinsey and go work at, you know, investment banks. And those are fine professions, but they're not the professions that build our economy. They're the professions that change kind of ownership and optimize things, right? But the real builders, the entrepreneurs are different. And so in some ways, I think that this kind of rock star movement that was really pioneered by Facebook, like this incredible story about how a student at Harvard could create something that became one of the world's most powerful companies was an important movement. You could see it in MBA schools. You could see that for the first time, people wanted to go to tech startups or build their own companies versus going to work on Wall Street to go to work for big consulting firms. So I think some of that's important because this is a tough fucking career. Like, you know, it's really nice when you see the glamorous moments. 80% of this career is you fail. Your products don't work. Your ideas don't work. Your marketing campaigns fall flat. No one cares about what you just built. Like that is perpetual. And it doesn't matter if you have a lot of experience doing this. The process of building something is just 
filled with failure. And so in many ways, I'm, I'm happy there's a little bit of a silver lining there where it's like, okay, but if you keep doing this, like there is some celebration and therefore humility is incredibly important because this is a career where you are constantly getting a black eye. Like it doesn't matter how successful you are. I mean, we can talk about the failures of Amazon and Microsoft and the biggest companies, right? Like they're all on display for all of us. I think the other thing is that that humility is so important because as businesses and as times adapt, you need different things to be successful today than what maybe made you successful when you started a couple of years ago. That humility allows people to see that. Now, as a judge on Dragon's Den, as someone who invests in multiple companies, as someone that's created a company like ClearBank, what are some of the common denominators that you've seen across the businesses that have done well in regards to their overall mission and what they're looking to achieve and how they're looking to change the world, I guess? I've gotten to see lots of companies over the years, which is amazing. And our model at ClearBank is looking at really solid unit economics and everything else. I think when you look at the correlation between all of that and all of the different kind of equity deals I've done backing founders, what shows up every time is founders that have an enormous amount of persistence and grit. Because it was kind of what I was saying before, like, this is a really tough career. And if you think you're going to be successful on your first go, put everything into that and then are devastated when it doesn't work, like this is never going to work for you (laughs) because unfortunately you have to do that sometimes half a dozen times, sometimes a dozen times before things actually start to work. And so I've tried to narrow the personality type. Sometimes people have a chip on their shoulder for a lot of different reasons. They have something to prove to their family or their significant other or their sibling or something. Those personality types are almost always successful because they are just not giving in. Some of it is sheer necessity. You see this in founders where you're like, they need this to work. Like they do not have a lot of other options. And that makes for extraordinarily successful founders. And then on the flip side of that, you know, I've invested in a couple of founders that get lucky on one of the first ideas that they try. And they always actually struggle the most because it's very hard for them to see that they have to adapt and change as their companies grow. One of the hardest things for me to learn as a founder, I still see, and you can see with all of the public displays of, you know, founders that have been taken down, is that what builds you to a Series A company is actually a very different skill set than what builds you to a Series C and then to a public company. Because so many people doubt you along the way, it's easy to get ingrained in this idea that like, well, I need to keep being a certain way or I need to keep leading a certain way. And the reality is, is you actually need to keep adapting your leadership style. Well, and I guess that comes back to this discussion on humility as well and being able to understand and be able to accept change and and the fact that you may need to look inwards about change as well. And that leadership is not static, it's dynamic, and it needs to adapt according to, you know, external and internal factors. What still surprises you about your work? You've built up a really amazing career. You've seen a lot of great companies and met a lot of great people. What is something that still surprises you and excites you? Diversity of like both innovation and challenges. The best part about my life is every day that I wake up, 
two times a week, something is going to blow up and I have no idea what it's going to be. Like I have no idea. And some of it is going to be like confetti blow up. Like, wow, that worked better than I ever thought possible. And most of the blow ups are like, oh, that seemed like such a tiny, stupid risk that now blew up in our face and putting out fires. And so I think this job is never, ever boring. And I love that part about it because it's just, it is like by definition full of prizes. So just coming full circle here, what would you say is your overall mission? What's the bigger picture and call to action for ClearBank and your role as a leader in the entrepreneurial ecosystem? My ultimate goal is like everyone with a great idea that's building a great business should be able to build that dream with like the funding and all of the knowledge they need to do that. And that's a big lofty mission. And if we can just make like a little dent in that, I think we can have a decent size impact. Well, that is a great note to end on. I really appreciate you being able to take the time today to chat with us. It's been a pleasure and I hope we can chat again soon. It was fun. It was awesome. Thank you for having me. Entrepreneurs often face a long and winding road ahead of them. A path mired with failures and no guarantee of success. It is a difficult journey and as such, underscores the importance of community. Entrepreneurs are not alone, nor do they build companies on their own. It's crucial to understand that as Michelle puts it, you are not scalable as a single person. Today's startup success stories are the result of a team effort, and that's why I wanted to speak with Michelle. Because beyond ambition and entrepreneurship, the big picture is really about community. It's about helping your neighbor during the hard times and celebrating together during the good times. It's about our duty to each other so that we can all come up together. That's what it means to be a leader. Next week on Mission Critical, we speak with breakout star Maitreyi Ramakrishna, who was handpicked by Mindy Kaling to lead a groundbreaking new Netflix show, Never Have I Ever. Maitreyi shares her experience working with Mindy and the importance of representation in media. Make sure to check it out. I try not to dwell on that, though. The fact that I didn't get this representation when I was younger, but the fact that my little cousin, she will. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts so we can get the word out. To keep up to date, subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, ask yourself, what's your mission?